Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. May has felt like a long political month in Wales. Local government elections and the Welsh Conservative Conference have bookended a month that has been dominated at UK level by Sugray and Partygate, as well as in Wales, obviously announcements about Senedd reform. Joining us to review the mammoth month of May is Conservative Community Councillor, veteran and former Conservative candidate in parliamentary and PCC elections, as well as Senate Office Manager, Councillor Hannah Jarvis. Hello, Hannah. Good evening. Hi. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Also in the room, we've got Rich. Good evening, all. And Kerry. Good evening, all. Where should we start this month? I think it's probably impossible not to deal with what's going on at Westminster with regards to a release of the full Sue Gray report into the party gate. Kerry, what have you made of the whole situation? Well, it's all quite disappointing from my perspective, Matt. I don't think anything has come as a surprise. I suppose it can be taken both ways. I think there's enough in there if people wanted to make a lot of it. And I think today, on the Mondays we record, there's 25 backbench letters into the 22 committee. Will it get to, I think it's 54? I'm not sure that really. I think it's dragged on to the extent that I don't think there is a real demand from Conservative backbenchers to really challenge Boris. And I think one of the things I was going to question later on is, you know, who would replace Boris? But, you know, from our perspective, it's not really us, which is, I've got the interest there. And, you know, I'm really pleased Hannah's joined us tonight. Hannah, what's the view from the ground support, really, of the Conservatives and in how the whole party gate has played out and where we are now? Well, obviously, at a, a council level, local authority level, we're the ones who've really felt the impact. So I think we probably feel more strongly than anyone about what's happened, more so than in Westminster. You know, I, I lost my election by three votes and I have hardworking councillor friends who've worked for decades and couldn't have done a better job over the last few years. But there was just no shaking the feeling and uh, the anti-Boris sentiment that arose from Partygate. And that's that's really um, depressing for us at this level. Did it feature much at the Welsh Conservative Conference last week? Was it a big point of discussion? Not really. I don't think it was touched upon that much. And, you know, in a sense, there's no point looking back. Everyone was excited to be at conference. We've missed the last couple of years with the pandemic. There was still things to celebrate we still gained ground in certain areas but no I think the 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 way it was presented was we need to look forward and we will rebuild it was acknowledged the the electorate sent a message but I think the focus was more on bouncing back and 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 moving forward. I'm curious about that you say that about the councillors being at the front line of you know, public sentiment in this particular subject. I mean, I think I don't think any of us are particularly relishing the fact that this is the lead story still uh, several months later. Um, but we had Richard John on the pod, um, the former leader of Monmouthshire County Council. And your is your your ward is in Monmouthshire, is that right? Or, That's right. Um, yes, yes, I still um, in Monmouthshire. And, and Richard was, he was very, I think we were all very impressed with, um, you know, his talk, because we had interviewed him just before the election. But it, obviously for him personally and for the Conservative group in Monmouthshire, it must have been quite a quite a shock, because I don't think anybody had expected that result. I mean, you know, maybe commentators had maybe thought that maybe there would be some negative effect on the doorstep. But Monmouthshire is one of those council areas in Wales that has such deep conservative history in a way that many other councils don't 
how, what was your experience as a Conservative con campaigning in, in, the, in the local government elections in Monmouthshire and in your ward? What sort of things were you hearing? Because there must still be quite a lot of support for general Conservative values, even if there's individual stories at the moment which are maybe persuading voters maybe not to vote or to put their vote maybe elsewhere. Mm. Um, there was definitely, I, I knew we were in trouble probably about, th in, my, in my particular ward, about three weeks before the count, because door after door, it wasn't that these people were Labour supporters, it's that they were traditional Conservative supporters who were just so appalled with what's gone on, they couldn't in all good conscience vote for a Conservative. And it's very difficult to, to combat that. You know, I am a Conservative, my values are Conservative, but I'm not in Westminster, I'm not an MP, I'm a, a hard-working local mum of two um, who just wants to do the best for my area and I feel very disconnected to, to Partygate and all went there. But we were, we were seeing that lifelong Tories were moving away from us um, and they just wanted, they said, you know, it was the last opportunity they had before an, another general election to send a message. And I had people apologising, saying it's not personal, but we can't vote Conservative while Boris is at the top. Richard came in for quite a lot of criticism after that election, you know, because it was kind of like a, a symbolic event in Wales, the only Conservative-led council to lose its control over the authority. Do you think there's anything that he could have done or the leadership group could have done? Uh, or, was, or was it just that the, the environmental conditions for the party were just too strong and, and there's literally nothing yeah. done he could have done no the latter absolutely Richard couldn't have done he couldn't have worked any harder um, we had a fantastic manifesto a fantastic team of candidates um, the first to be 50-50 gender balanced we were the only one to lose control but we were the only Tory-led uh, council to begin with in, in Wales and indeed out of, outside of England um, he was in a difficult position you know as a, a senior Conservative figure but he came out and he did what he needed to do and spoke out against Boris because, you know, he, he has to think of Monmouthshire and his councillors here and his job was to try and regain, uh, retain control of the council and get as many councillors in. So he said how he felt and he came in for some stick for that, for people loyal to Boris, but um, he did the right thing. And I think if he hadn't done that, we would have had a, a far worse result in Monmouthshire. Monmouth is a sort of standout result i suppose because it it was considered his only council in wales but there were other places such as denbyshire where the conservatives went from being the largest group in, in charge of the council in coalition to now only the fourth largest group so the the question i sort of ha have for you hannah is does is that worrying for upcoming elections or do you do, or do you think that people were just sending a message well, both. They were sending a message, but that's, that is a concern. We really need to heed that message. Um, what happened was not acceptable in my view, compounded by the, the way it was handled. I could go on and I could wax lyrical about that. I could go on forever. Mm -hmm. But we need to, you know, we need to listen and, and move on. And frankly, while Boris is still in post, I'm not sure we can. What about what's your take on it, Matt, in the Bay? not just on the grassroots Conservatives, but, you know, what, what's the whispers around uh, that kind of level of Welsh politics about Boris and Partygate? There was a period of time, and I, I talked about this on the pod, where I think that Partygate 
didn't feel as much of an issue as it had done previously. I think that the events in Ukraine had started to move people's minds away from the problems that arose from Partygate and the conservatives were feeling slightly more confident, actually. But I think that the timing of fines and additional information about when the report would be released sharpened people's minds. And I think that is what eventually caused the result that, that occurred. The Welsh Conservative Party overall have remained broadly in support of the Prime Minister, but I don't think they are shouting about it particularly. I think that it's an interesting contrast from the position of the Scottish Conservatives, who have been much more openly standing out against the Prime Minister, although Douglas Ross has sort of gone back and forth on that. At least the Welsh Conservatives, you could say, have sort of kept a line. But I don't think there's any desire to see a, a change in leadership immediately. But I think they understand that this is an issue. And if Boris remains as unpopular as he is, it, it will certainly be very problematic going into the next general election. It's a little bit ahead of where I was planning on the script, but we focused on Boris really quite quickly. And you just mentioned leadership, Matt. Hannah, you've been quite frank, which we welcome. So appreciate that. If, if Boris is the problem if from the Conservative trenches, the solution is to then look earlier rather than later to replace him. But is there, is there a bit of an issue that there isn't an obvious candidate to replace him? Or, or do you think there are people, we are beginning to see the beginnings of a Conservative leadership? Well, I think there are there are potential people who would who'd stand up and, and take the leadership, and there are people I would support, one in one particular in mind. I think bearing in mind the, the issue for me is integrity. It was more about the way it was handled than the parties themselves. You know, it shows a lack of awareness and bad, bad judgment. But I think if Boris hadn't handled it so badly and tried to deceive us and, and make fools of us all, apologised and, and been more frank and open right in the beginning, you know, perhaps we could have survived this and wouldn't have seen such damage in, in the local elections. So bearing in mind, I think that's, you know, an issue with integrity and, and taking responsibility. I'd like to see Sajid Javid as the next leader. Um, you know, I know he has integrity because of when he resigned from the cabinet over um, Boris and, and Cummings interfering with his staff. That speaks volumes for me. And so I'd like to see somebody like him as the next leader. Speaking from a Labour perspective, I suppose the real question you've got to ask is, is who would Labour not want to fight a general election against? And I think Sajid Javid is, is possibly up there as someone you wouldn't want to fight an election against, I think. For me... The person I am always slightly concerned about if, if I were a Labour Party going into a general election against would be Tom Tuggenhat. Although Tom Tuggenhat has not held cabinet office before, he is incredibly well respected across the parties in Westminster, you know, a veteran, uh, the chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, a, a, a proper intellect who is very good in his feet. I, I think that if I were Keir Starmer, I really, really wouldn't want to take on Tom Tuggenhat. Although... I think that the one thing that is, goes against him is that people don't really know who he is outside of the political bubble. So uh, Sajid would be an interesting opponent for Keir Starmer, I think, definitely. I think that Labour are well prepped to take on someone like Rishi Sunak. I think they're well prepped to take on someone like Liz Trust. Liz Trust, sorry. Um, but it is a, it's an interesting question. I think that's something that should boil into the way that political parties think about their leadership. But as you can see from parties picking candidates like Jeremy Corbyn, that's not always the case. They sometimes lurch back to where they want to be rather than where they should be. 
Um, do you think that's a danger, Hannah, of, of the Conservatives picking um, a very traditionally conservative candidate rather than maybe trying to win back the centre ground? Yeah, I, I would like to see someone a bit more moderate. I do agree Tom Tugendhat would be a really good choice. Um, he's, you know, a veteran and I support fellow veterans, Johnny Mercer, the same. Um, I'm not sure he'd want to go for it. <laughs> but yeah, I think they'd, they'd all be excellent choices. And I wouldn't want to see someone any any more right than we have now, put it that way. Yeah. Well, our first ever sort of pod interview a pub panel was with Faye Jones wasn't it back in the day three years ago and um and we've had obviously we've had Andrew RT on and various other people over over the last few years and I think one of the interesting things that we don't really have a good handle of is what the experience of Welsh conservatism is at the moment in a way that isn't true in Scotland, there's this kind of perspective that there is a quite a clear delineation in Scotland um, between mm. the Scots Conservatives and the, the UK Conservatives. In Wales, it's a lot more fluid. It's a lot more kind of mixed up because we have obviously we have the Secretary of State and we have the Chair of the Welsh Conservatives. And we have, of course, at the moment, Andrew R.T. Davis in, in the Senate. And at a conference, I, I think I'm kind of curious to know, because it was the Welsh Conservative Conference just a few weeks ago, what, what was what was the kind of vibe that you were getting about where the party has been and where it's going in the future? I was there for some of the conference. I was there for the Saturday, uh, but not all of it. The, the, the Welsh Conservatives brand themselves very much as Welsh Conservatives. Obviously, Scotland is um, more devolved than Wales, but as unionists, it's hard because they don't want us to be, we don't, for example, Andrew Arty isn't a leader. He's he's the group leader of the Welsh Conservatives. And I think that's important um, to distinguish because it, you know, we don't want to undermine our newness credentials. But yeah, it, it, it's, it's difficult to identify, I think, and and specify what a Welsh Conservative is because historically, we've not done that well in Wales so where do you pitch yourself and I think that's a problem and something you know we've just mentioned I think we need to be moving to be a more compassionate party we've seen how people have responded to Ukraine and and before that Afghanistan I don't think recent announcements of like what we're doing with um, immigration Rwanda is that popular to be honest and I think we need to listen to that and and, um, yeah take heed of that message. We interviewed um, Sam Kurtz, actually, probably about a year ago. A lot of that interview focused on what is Welsh conservatism? What does it mean to be a Welsh conservative? And I think, actually, you saw a couple of very interesting announcements uh, at the Conservative Party conference where Andrew R.T. Davis was actually going against UK Conservative Party policy, things Mm. like asking for uh, the binary consequentials of HS2, campaigning on what is, to be fair, a very long-held uh, Welsh Conservative Manifesto pledge to have a, a bank holiday for St David's Day. Mm. It's, it's a very interesting question of whether you can have parties that go against each other at a Wales or UK level and disagree mm. with each other, and whether that is just devolution in action or whether mm. that is a broader symptom or a broader sign of, 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 of fracture within parties. And to be fair to the Welsh Conservatives, I don't think that's the case in this instance. I think that it is just Andrew Arty trying to forge a more Welsh path for the Welsh Conservatives. And I'll open this up to everyone. Do you think that that's enough? Do you think 
fighting for things like Barnet Consequentials and a bank holiday for St. David's Day is enough? Or do you think that you would need to see the Welsh Conservatives take uh, more of a distinct line on other policy areas in order to portray themselves truly as Welsh Conservatives? It's not enough, I don't think. You know, I know I understand what, what RT is doing and we're trying to appeal to those who have a really strong Welsh identity, which is, is quite right. But it's the, it's the big things like the M4, the M4 relief road, that when I've knocked on doors in the general election that people are really interested, they don't really, or they might, you know, appreciate a bank holiday for St David's Day, but let's be fair, it doesn't make um, a difference to their everyday life. Um, the concerns over further devolved tax powers and, you know, how they get to work every day and not being stuck on the, the M M4 for 90 minutes is what really matters to people. And that's what I think we need to be focusing our attention on. Rich, did you have any thoughts about how the Conservatives stake themselves out to be more Welsh Conservatives? Air quotes are a terrible medium for a podcast, I've just realised. <laughs> yeah, air quotes pretty much covered the whole of that last uh, <laughs> question. You know, as with voters across Wales, I think it's very difficult to kind of characterise what a Welsh Conservative is, because the kind of person that would vote Conservative perhaps in Monmouth or um, down in Pembrokeshire is perhaps different to where I live, which is in Pronlick and Antarv. I know the, the, the type of person that might vote Conservative would have a slightly different viewpoint on what Conservatism is. So I'm not sure what that spectrum of kind of quite harder um, rights conservatism is or kind of economic conservatism versus the kind of more centrist kind of con compassionate conservatism um, as I suppose by Richard and, and colleagues in Monmouth but I, there's a sort of strategic problem with the kind of multiple directions of the leaderships in different parliaments that Labour seems to handle very very well and because the conservative group has handled it significantly less well whether or not there is significant policy divergence there or not at the end of the day, just being nimble enough and in terms of communicating that and kind of presenting what the Senedd group is and does, I think really hampers them when standing against Labour. Because, you know, fairly unambiguously, in a situation where you, it's safe, like Ernest Morn is a applied Labour Conservative three-way competition, it's quite easy to characterise what the Plaid Cymru angle is going to be on that but where you have the welsh labor party which is part of a larger unionist labor party and the welsh conservative party as part of a larger unionist conservative party you can see how how to manage that devolution element in the labor party and and maybe how not to have managed it quite so successfully in the conservative group and i just think that until the leadership finds some new way to do that in Wales and is given the space to do that by the central party, I just think that they're always going to be at a disadvantage. Unless you can use the system to your advantage in the same way that Labour have done so, then you're always going to be playing catch up electorally. And, and you know, obviously local issues elsewhere and, and, you know, policy difference perhaps across constituencies in Wales. But I think that just at that Senedd level, it's very difficult to argue that the Welsh Conservatives have nailed what a Welsh Conservative Senedd group should be doing and aiming for and you know we, we've talked about and we've spoken with you know David Melding and and hopefully we'll we'll speak to Nick Bourne at some point in the not too distant future as well just about that time when in the early years of the in this of the Senate they, they spent a lot of time trying to rethink what conservatism would be and should look like in modern Wales and it feels like the answer for that never came that sentence was never finished and until that's kind of done 
they don't they, they can't, don't really have anything solid to stand on. There are no foundations from which you can build. I, I, I don't I don't think it really matters. I think the Welsh Conservatives, historically, if you look back, they've always been a significant part of Welsh political life, as much as we might not like to present it. But they've always been around that twenty to thirty plus mark in elections. And I think they'll stay that whether they're badged as a Welsh party or whether they're badged as, you know, what they are, which is Conservative and Unionist Party. You know, the issue, I think, Hannah made it quite clear, is that the issue they've got is that if they're associated with a, a negative and poor-performing UK leadership, it hits the Welsh party. But, you know, I think Hannah's a perfect example of the conservatives in wales people who want to make a difference in their community and uh, wales has got that across the country on the laboring a point i just wanted to uh, to talk about the fact that it's, it's going to always be difficult for the conservatives whilst they're in government in the uk level you know if you if you have a, a labor government in westminster when they start doing unpopular things it will start impacting on the welsh labor party no matter how right or wrong that is. So it's always going to be difficult when you're in power at Westminster level where all the media attention is focused. So actually, weirdly, not that I'm sure Hannah will be rushing for this, uh, for this to occur, but I think that if you had a Labour government in Westminster, it might actually be easier for a Conservative Party in Wales to craft their own Welsh identity. We, you know, we're Labour in the Conservative uh, aspect of the month of May. There's been a lot which has gone on, and I think um, we all want to pick some points on May which have uh, intrigued us. I think the standout one has to be Senate reform. And I know you, Rich and Matt, have got very different opinions, shall we say, on that. But I'd like to give our guest the, the first crack on the Senate reform. Hannah, I, I'm sure it was mentioned at Conservative Conference last week. You know, have you got any thoughts on that? Well, on that, I am aligned with the Welsh Conservatives. I, I don't think it's a good idea. Um <sighs> You know, I, I accept devolution because uh, I believe in democracy. It was um, a slimmer margin than the Brexit vote um, 20, was it 20 years ago now. Um, but, you know, that it's, it's here to stay. But I don't think we need any more politicians in the Senate. And at this time, with everything, you know, the economic challenges we've faced coming out of a pandemic, we can ill afford it. And the money should be going elsewhere. It's much, you know, it's needed much more in, in other places, health and education. So no, I'm, I'm really against the plans. It might, it might interest you to know that you're not the only person on this panel tonight who's against it. Let's, no, let's have a look, let's have a look around. Um, Matt, I, do, you want to, do you want to comment on where you are with this as well? I am not a massive fan of the proposal, albeit I think for probably very different reasons than Hannah. <laughs> I, I am in favour of Senate expansion. I think that there is a need for more MSs. The system that has been proposed, uh, albeit with many good aspects, such as the gender quotas, which I think we should all get behind, I do think that the use of the de-haunt system, the closed list to haunt system, puts a lot of power into the hands of the political parties, takes away a lot of the power of the voter, the average voter. It will, it will probably make breaking the whip very unlikely, if not impossible, for members of the Senate when they're elected because the, the party will be able to decide where they go on the ballot or how likely it is they are elected in their particular paired constituency. Uh, and I think that you had a really good opportunity to introduce STV and you didn't take it. I also don't think that this system 
is very beneficial to the smaller parties. I think that if you really want a more democratic Wales, you should have a system that is more democratic and gives more choice to voters, not less. Uh, and that is what this system would do with less choice to voters than they currently have. I think it would make the election of Greens or Liberal Democrats basically impossible. And I think that it would ensure that you're in a situation where forever Labour and Plaid Cymru will probably be in coalition together. But I mean, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, by the way, but I'm just saying that that is likely to be the situation. Although me and Rich have had some disagreements on this, I think that it's not a perfect system. If push came to shove, would I vote for it? I mean, probably, but not very happily. It's going to happen. That's the problem. There's no point in having this having this, uh, you know, moral crisis within myself. This system is going to be what, ha- what happens. So I think we've just got to make the best of it. But I think that there were so many uh, better systems available that we should pick one of them. And I think Rich had some good research on this, uh, actually, that I think I'd like him to bring up. Uh, yeah, so I was doing a little bit of background reading on the uh, systems uh, that uh, have were studied by the Electoral Reform Society ahead of any potential Senate reform plan coming together. And uh, there's a lovely quote on uh, one of their reports, uh, which says, the power inquiry in 2006 recommendation 13 was that the closed party list system should have no place in modern elections. And, uh, you know, that really did tickle me because that was in the uh, ERS report uh, of only April 2022. So, you know, I'm not going to disagree with you. I think at the end of the day, it feels like this is going to happen. And what it's going to do is probably lock in three-party politics in the Senate for the foreseeable future. I think the question really is where, if we assume that it's going to go through, and we assume that the Labour whip will hold together and that all of the Labour Senate members will hold it, I think you, you roll forward at what what does the next Senate election look like? I mean, are we going to see a, a whittling away of options or are we going to see expansion of options? And I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of curious to see how creative this will be and how, how well the parties will make good on their pledges to try and make Wales a better democracy or whether it will be a case of boosting the career potential for some of their rising stars as the Senate expands. I'm, I, I'm not entirely supportive of it despite wanting to see Senate reform. But I just don't think it's something that we should be too concerned about because it feels like it is a glacier moving down a valley ahead of the next election. Kerry, I, uh, given that you are our resident Green, uh, and the Greens had such a good breakthrough at the local uh, government elections, you know, a record eight councillors across Wales, uh, very... Ten, ten councillors, uh, Eight and two halves, we'll go with. Eight and two halves. Common ground is a joint endeavour. Eight and two halves. Felt like the Senate election, although they didn't get elected, felt like they were getting edging closer and closer to eventually maybe getting an MS. This system basically makes it nigh on impossible for Greens to get elected. Yet the Wales Green Party have been unanimously supportive of the proposal. What is your assessment of that? Your word unanimously is a little misleading because I'm not, uh, and that's quite important. No, I, I think they welcome it, as Rich said, but it, it's progress. And, like, you know, do you stop that progress simply because you don't like what's being uh, presented or do you work with it and try and continue the change going forward? I think that's the Green Party 
position. I can't confirm or deny whether we've put something officially out. I haven't seen that. But on a personal basis, I, I'm not impressed, I don't think, without STV. And there's an awful lot. Rather than labouring this point, I think you've all covered it quite quite clearly. I, I think there's an option to be a little bit more radical in other ways. I think you both know I like to separate out the executive from the legislative. And I think we're going to lose 20 members under this new proposal for a new cabinet and speakers. So, you know, we're giving with one hand and taking away with another. So I'm not impressed whether it, it, it is going to happen. But um, I, I agree with everything that you've all said, really. That there's issues with it. And I, I really would have let the Senate committee, which was looking into it, report before announcing it. And in fairness, as we're conservative focused with Hannah tonight, I doff my hat to Darren Miller for walking away from the committee and saying, what's the point if we're not going to listen to the report at the end of it? Well, just if I can just pick up on on what you were saying about about progress on that point, if I may. You know, the one thing that concerns me, apart from the complexity of of the DeHunt system, and I, I think people find it confusing, I saw that in the PCC elections, the number of... Um, papers that were were spoiled or people hadn't used correctly was in the thousands. I think that's an issue. But what you were saying about female quotas really concerns me. And I I wouldn't say that that is progress. Whilst I am absolutely for supporting a 50-50 gender balance in politics, I don't think you achieve that by quotas, statutory quotas. I think that's really bad news. And you, you potentially can end up with rubbish candidates and rubbish politicians. And in Monmouthshire, we've been living proof that that's not necessary. You can you can achieve 50-50 by headhunting and supporting. And we, we did it. And we've, we had some f- great female candidates. And these mandatory quotas, I just think, are not necessary and are a step backwards. I don't think it's, it's progress at all. On that point, Hannah, if you don't mind, mm. I just want to talk to you a bit more about that. How do you think that could be done at a more national level? Because I think, although I, you know, I am in favour of, of things like all women shortlists, etc. I, I do agree with you that I think that there is a lot more that could be done by the parties to ensure that they're looking for the right candidates, rather than just relying on things like all women shortlists as, as just as a as a backup plan for for their own inability to deal with structural problems about picking candidates. So, do you think the Monmouth model is something that would work across Wales, and that parties should do more work at just headhunting the right candidates? Yeah, absolutely. More networking, more mentoring, more headhunting in all walks of life. You know, I'm a single mum. I'm not your traditional Tory candidate, probably in in some respects, probably I'm in others. But I've had phenomenal support in in Monmouthshire from um, female councillors. And yes, I think that can be replicated without the statutory quotas. Things like women to win. And then the the non-political associations, the 50-50 movement, they've really helped um, us find some decent candidates. Yeah, it's a matter of looking and supporting and, and removing all those barriers in, in society in general, not allowing childcare and things like that to be a barrier. So doing everything we can to get women in and, and support them once they're there. One thing I do quite like in the proposals, Hannah, and I'm wondering if I could get your thoughts on this, is, you know, we've had Bethan Syed on the pod a couple of times and she's talked about how being a mum and a politician was very was very hard thing to balance. And one of the proposals that's come through in this report is that they will investigate how maybe job sharing 
uh, of elected representatives could work. Would you be supportive of that? And do you think that the, the parties across the board should be supportive of that move? Yeah, absolutely. Anything like that that, that is a supporting measure is welcome as far as I'm concerned. If it means we get the right people in, we probably lose some incredible candidates because of barriers in the working life. Just don't allow them to stand. So if we can do that, yeah, absolutely, I support that. We've diverged a little bit, but I do want to come back to my story of the month, Hannah. I, I can, if I can bring it to you, because it is quite interesting from your perspective with uh, when you ran as a police and crime commissioner. But the story which has kind of gone under the radar because it was a it was actually quite a busy month with stories was the delivering justice for wales announcement by consul general mick Antonou and minister for social justice jane hutt they've outlined kind of a, a new approach to justice in wales and state that the reasons for with the pressures on the justice system can only really be addressed by taking a more preventative and holistic approach i don't know if you saw that so i don't want to put you on the spot but I thought yeah, that was yeah. quite a big story, which did go under the radar in Wales. Yeah, so obviously they're calling for uh, devolved justice powers. I think that's an absolutely um, preposterous idea, to be honest. I don't think you can devolve justice. It is a problem, very much a problem. Um, the backlog, even before COVID, um, cases waiting to go to trial um, were at an all-time high something needs to be done to tackle it. You know, the thought of rape victims waiting a couple of years before they see justice or even just go to trial and they're, whoever's potentially committed the crime just walking the streets is, is far from ideal. And don't think that the, the Nightingale courts are really cutting it in terms of catching up. So investment needs to be made we need to we do need to tackle it something needs to be done but it it has to be done centrally i don't think the answer is devolving justice powers to wales it's a tricky one it's it's always the best it's about finding the right balance with what should be devolved it's uh, without harking back to uh david using david cameron's uh turn of phrase and a came to devolution it's about powers for a purpose it's about making sure that when you devolve things you know exactly what you're going to do with them and you think you can do it better there is a well-rehearsed argument about why it would be difficult to have a, a distinct legal jurisdiction in Wales versus England. I think that though there is a definite trajectory of what the Welsh government wanted to do following the Thomas Commission report. And I think that they are just carrying about the work they think that they need to do in order to make sure that could happen. But I think the, re the re reality of it, Kerry, is that the UK government are in no mind to devolve justice or policing or prisons. So a lot of this work is, is merely preparatory. There's lots of good work coming out when they're doing it, and I think that that should be commended. But I do think it's one of these strange questions you've got to ask yourself when should the Welsh Government be focusing so much in an area that isn't devolved when there are such pressing issues on other areas which are? Whilst I don't think they shouldn't be doing it, I think that it's 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 that's... The one question I, I do have, there are other things they could be doing within the justice realm rather than focusing on this, albeit an incredibly important area to work, work on. There's only one, as far as I'm aware, there's only one of us on the call uh, that has stood in a PCC election. And of course, we've talked a lot about PCC elections, but most of that 
discussion has been about how little public engagement there has been in terms of the turnout for the vote. So I, I was just wondering if we could ask what the experience of standing as a PCC candidate was like and, and you know, how you feel about the model for you know, managing the police force in Wales, police forces. Um, yeah, well, my experience was that the biggest part of the campaign was actually educating people as to what a PCC was and does rather than convincing them to vote for me. You know, in terms of politics, PCC is a, a relatively new position. It was a Theresa May's creation and we've had three elections and that's, yeah, that's not very long in, in terms of politics. It's overshadowed by parliamentary elections, obviously, and by, in, in my view, in local elections as well. It was an education for me. So I think it's a really important role you know to hold the police force the chief constable to account and I think the more people know about it the more they they do realize the value of the job it was challenging to campaign um, just because it was a bit unknown a bit unfamiliar for people. Are there any of the the PCCs that you've seen that have done well would you say that any of them are doing a particularly good job because I think you know, there is a degree of anonymity about it um, in, in, in the public sphere. No one really talks about whether any of the PCCs are doing a particularly good job or not. Yeah, Katie Bourne in, in um, Surrey, she's doing a really good job. She's been around since its creation, so she's in her third term. Alison Hernandez down in Dorset, she's one as well. You know, she's quite savvy on social media and, and you know, that's, that's a big part of it um, these days. And they're two really, I mean, I look up to them as really strong female conservative politicians. So, yes, um, and they helped me. They they coached me and gave me support throughout the campaign. And they were sort of who I, I looked up to. They're doing a great job. Jumping, just one last question from me. We haven't done much about the uh, the nature of the military in Wales or um, or veterans in Wales. And just, just as a veteran I, I, yourself, I, I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about what that experience is like in Wales, if you have any kind of networks or anything that you've been involved with. What should we be thinking about the challenges facing current serving and ex-members of the armed forces in Wales? You know, those of us that have served in war stand as in good stead for politics, really. We, we know the value of hard work. We're generally pretty honest and frank can see that we've already talked about a couple of veterans, Johnny Mercer, Tom Tugendhat, um, but on the other side, um, Dan Jarvis, I think he's fantastic. Veterans are generally no nonsense and, and say what they think and do what they say. I'm trying to encourage veteran friends of mine to stand. Yeah, I, I joke about us going to war, but it is completely alien to most of them. When you're in the forces, you move around a lot. You don't follow politics because you're out of the country half the time and you're moving from house to house. But veterans have a lot to offer and I, I'm part of networks who offer me support and in turn I offer other veterans support and um, you know in the same way I'd like to see more women in politics I'd like to see more veterans in politics. It's not related to a veteran but I'm sure I read somewhere that you're also working to support things that are going on in Ukraine at the moment. Is that oh yeah yeah I've made um three trips out twice to Poland and once to Ukraine. So I've been working with a charity called Bridge to Unity, who was set up by an RAF veteran friend of mine. And um, we've been 
fundraising we've had a vehicle donated to us and we've been making trips out there taking medical aid and that's what we focused on medical aid rather than clothes or food or anything and with the knowledge we built up on the first two trips and the contacts we made about two weeks ago we actually went into Ukraine we went over the border and were able to help and take medical aid directly to where it was needed but that's you know again veterans have got a bit of get up and go and if we see a problem we generally tackle it head on and just do it and get on with it and you know I think that would be that's, that's a really good quality to have in politics. Uh, I just want to say thank you so much for talking to us this evening if people want to hear more from you where can they go to Twitter to find you? Uh, yeah I'm on Twitter uh, Hannah HJ Jarvis so yes I'm on there and Facebook. <laughs> Great thank you very much. Uh, Rich where can people find you? As always at the Mosa Cymru. Kerry, have you changed your Twitter handle back to the good one yet? I have. I am back at uh, Kerry the Viking. And I just want to throw one more point in to, to listeners. that The one thing which, again, mainstream British media, I don't think we're picking up hugely, is that Northern Ireland had an election at the start of the month and they're still without an executive because I think they failed again today to elect a speaker. So we've got one administration in the UK, which is still, um, I think it's, it's run by, it's civil service and from Westminster at the moment, isn't it? Yep. Ruining my outro. Thanks, Kerry. And you can find me at Hexter101. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard this evening, please don't forget to find Here I on Twitter and Facebook at Here I Pod or go to our website, www.walespolitics.com. Thank you for listening to Here I. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.